If you begin in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and just read through your Bible, by the time you get to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24, you will have read 837 of the Bible's 1,189 chapters, or 21,383 out of its 31,103 verses. My point is, is that you would have read 70% of your Bible. Just do the eye test. Put your finger down in Ezekiel chapter 36 and just look at what's behind your finger and then what's after your finger and you see that Ezekiel 36 is more than two-thirds of the way through the Bible and you haven't even read the life of Jesus. And if you sum up this story, this story from Genesis chapter 1 to Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 21, you can title it, From Babylon to Babylon. After the global flood of Noah's day, God told Noah's descendants to scatter and to multiply. Instead, the peoples of the earth rallied together around a tower at Babel. Rather than seek the one true God, mankind turned to the stars for guidance. The people built a tower to the heavens, an ancient observatory. The leader of this coup d'etat, the lightning rod, was a man named Nimrod. Nimrod had convinced his followers that God was the enemy. He caused the people to fear God in the world that God had created. Nimrod fashioned himself as a savior. And again, God had to intervene. He broke up the rebellion. He confused the languages and he dispersed the tribes of humanity to separate corners of the globe. You see, the human family was the only creature made in God's image and in God's likeness. God created us special and wanted our fellowship. But mankind chose to have nothing to do with God. We rebelled with a vengeance twice before the flood and then at the Tower of Babel. Even when all God had in mind for humanity was our best interests, Man defied his authority and resisted his will. And that's why, after the rebellion at Babel, God changed tactics. You see, man's defiance had boiled over under a man named Nimrod in a land called Babel and through a means, which was fear. But now God changes tactics. He chooses a man of his own named Abraham. He takes him from Babel and he brings him to a new land, the land of Israel. And then he teaches him and his family a new means by which to approach life to live by faith. So God's response to Nimrod and Babylon in fear was Abraham and the land of Israel and a life of faith. And for 2,000 years, God immersed himself in the loving and nurturing and training of his people, the Hebrews. He gave them his law. It included commandments that protected them morally 
and showed them how to love themselves. Rituals and sacrifices that taught them symbolically how to love God. And laws specific to their own civilization that showed them how to love and get along with each other. And not only did God give them his law, he gave them something more special. He gave them himself. He came to live tangibly among his people. The eternal almighty God who spills over skies, who holds galaxies in his palm, did the unthinkable. He made his home among these people. For 400 years, God lived in a tent. For another 400 or so years, it was a temple. Amazingly, the creator, God, had his people Israel build him a temple in Jerusalem. He called it his footstool. The temple was, temple was a temporal home for God's eternal glory. And for 2,000 years, God's headquarters on earth was the family of Abraham and the temple in Jerusalem. And God made incredible promises to these people. <clears throat> if they obeyed his law, God promised to bless them abundantly. The land they inhabited would be fruitful. He would spare them diseases. In their battles, he would grant them victories. God would see to it that the family of Abraham was the most prosperous nation on the planet. And to a large degree, this is what happened during Israel's glory years. Under King David and Solomon, she rose to great heights. Israel became this mighty nation. And God made even greater promises. His prophets predicted that one day Israel would be a global kingdom. And have an eternal king. God promised King David that his heir would sit on his throne forever. This promised ruler was given the name Messiah. Which means anointed one. But God made other promises too. If his people disobeyed his law and rebelled against his grace. He promised that judgment would follow them. That he wouldn't give up on them but that he wouldn't tolerate their sin either. Like a dad who spanks his kids, God would discipline his people, Israel, and steer them back to himself. And this outlines most of the 2,000 years of Hebrew history. From Abraham leaving Babel for this promised land to Ezekiel's day when we find Israel being taken back to Babylon in captivity, over and over the Jews rebelled against God's law and followed after idols. And God would raise up oppressing nations to spank his rebellious kids. God loved Israel and he wanted the best for them. But until they admitted their wicked ways and turned back to him, God was forced to make things hard on his people. Now if you're reading along in your Bible from Genesis to Ezekiel, these last few books that you would have read would have hammered home this point. Isaiah and Jeremiah are big books that cover warning after warning and judgment after judgment. They were written at a time when the rebellion of God's people had reached an apex. Over and over, these people chased after idols. Despite God's pleadings, despite His blessings, despite His overtures of mercy and grace, the Hebrews hardened their hearts toward Him. You know, we pity the Hebrew people because we see their, that through their history, 
They experienced hardship after hardship. And we see their history through a human perspective. That's why we wonder how anyone could do anything to deserve such terrible hardships. But if we look at their journey from God's perspective, we would also marvel. How could anyone be so determined to insult God's honor and to break God's heart? How could God be so loving to Israel and Israel so mean to God? The book of Jeremiah and the first 35 chapters of Ezekiel repeat this story. God warned and he warned. Finally, the messenger came. Ezekiel was in Babylon when a herald reached him, a man with a report. He delivered the news that Jerusalem had been razed to the ground. The temple, God's footstool, had been burned and was no more. And the remainder of the Hebrews were in shackles on their way to Babylon to join Ezekiel in exile and captivity. What an awful irony. God's chosen people could trace their roots all the way back to Babylon, but they had been given the opportunity to come out of the land of idols, to know the one true God, and become a great nation before Him and in the eyes of the world. But because of their sin, they failed, and they ended up right back where they started. When Jerusalem fell to the invading Babylonian army and their king was deposed, hauled off to Babylon in leg irons. A chill settled in over the more knowledgeable rabbis. Now a son of David no longer ruled in Israel. Had God's promises failed? What about this worldwide kingdom and this eternal king that he had promised? The rabbis familiar with these promises were left to wonder. Psalm 137 was written by a Jew at the time living in Babylon. Tears must have stained the page as he wrote. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows. For those who carried us away captive asked us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth. But This is how they answered. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. In Babylon, the Jews found tolerable treatment. They were allowed to live free, allowed to prosper. But there was a longing inside these people to return to their home. They had left promises unfulfilled, blessings still on the table. The Hebrews who were uprooted and taken to Babel lived lives of regret. They had blown their opportunity. Here's why they wept. Here's why their hands didn't play and their voice couldn't sing a song of mirth. They assumed that God was finished with them, but not so. For in their darkest hour, God shined his brightest light. Imagine a professional baseball player enduring the worst season of his career. Don't know what team he might play for, but oh, what a coincidence. <clears throat> the Atlanta Braves. But imagine this poor guy, he's hitting 125, he's got no home runs, and he's struck out 100 times. His defense is so bad, he prays for the batter to hit it to anybody but him. 
This player is expecting to be released any day now. But instead, what if the owner of the team comes to him on his very worst day and offers him a raise? Rather than cut the guy, he promises him a brand new contract. Well, this is what God did for his people Israel. At their lowest of lows, he offers them a raise with benefits. This is how God responds to Israel's remorse and deep longing. He makes them a new promise. Though separated by 900 miles, two prophets, Jeremiah amidst the ruins of Jerusalem and Ezekiel by the rivers of Babylon, they both announce a new covenant. And if you keep reading, this becomes the theme of the Bible's last lap. This last 30% of the Bible. Realize more than two-thirds of your Bible is the story of mankind's failure. First, of all the nations, then of God's chosen people. Both failed to savor the sweet mercies of a loving God. But God gives it another try. In His undying grace and mercy, after all the many times He has, he has attempted to work things out with His people Israel... Why would this time be any different? Well, welcome to the wonder of all wonders. For this new covenant was a better covenant. It was a promise so great, so merciful, that it was hard to fathom. You see, the last third of your Bible is the miracle called Christianity. It's the story of God's willingness to launch a new covenant when the old one had faltered. It's about God's relentless faithfulness to both Israel and to all mankind. I want us to read some of this new covenant, two passages really, here in Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37 that describe God's new covenant. The first is in chapter 36, beginning in verse 24. Chapter 36, beginning in verse 24. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land and I, that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and, your, and that your deeds were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, 
on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. And then with a note of finality, God says, I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. And then in chapter 37, beginning in verse 21, 37 verse 21, we're told, Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. David, my servant, I believe a reference to David's heir, the Messiah, shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. While the Jews were in Babylon, God cut them a new deal. It consisted of a threefold promise. First, Israel will be regathered to their land. Second, spiritual life will be born or regenerated in their hearts. And third, a king will come to reestablish David's throne and God's kingdom to Israel. Here's the rest of your Bible. A regathering of the Jews to the land, a regeneration of hard hearts, then the reestablishment of God's kingdom on the earth. And notice the order. God regathers, then He regenerates, then He reestablishes His physical kingdom. It's an oversimplification perhaps, but it can be helpful to look at the remaining third of the Bible this way. The rest of the Old Testament shows how God regathers the Jews to Jerusalem. The New Testament teaches us how God regenerates our hearts. And Revelation, as well as portions of the prophets, describe how God is going to one day reestablish His political kingdom on the earth. This is what the famous vision at the beginning of Ezekiel 37 is all about. You've heard of the valley of dry bones. The prophet sees this valley. It's full of dry and brittle bones. Suddenly, these bones begin to come together again. The hand bone is connected to the arm bone, and the arm bone is connected to the shoulder bone, and on and on it goes. After God assembles the skeletons, muscle and flesh suddenly cover them, sinew covers them in strength. But they still have no breath. And this is Israel today. The Jews have and are returning to their ancient homeland. 
and they have muscle. Oh, they have muscle. In fact, if the U.S. keeps depleting our military, we might have to call on Israel for help. I saw this t-shirt when I was in Jerusalem. America, don't worry. Israel is behind you. As in Jesus' day, in our today, Israel is a miracle. Dry bones have reassembled. A strong nation now exists. Until recently, the Jews were in exile. But there's still no breath. And before the kingdom can come to Israel, God's Spirit has to invade the hearts of the people. According to the New Covenant, spiritual revival is a prerequisite for the coming of the Messiah and God's kingdom. And this was exactly the scenario in the first century A.D. Under the ancient Zionists like Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, many of the Jews came home to Babylon or from Babylon. In first century, Israel grew muscle. The Jews rebuilt Jerusalem. They rebuilt their temple. Israel had regathered. Now the Jews were expecting the kingdom. Realize the new, the new covenant was the backdrop before which the gospel accounts unfolded. So much of what our Lord Jesus said and so much of what the people around him expected were all predicated on these promises. In fact, the threefold promise of the new covenant was what was in Nicodemus' mind in John chapter 3 when he paid Jesus that nighttime visit. Remember, it was the first Nick at night. Nicodemus was a respected Jewish scholar. He was schooled in the prophecies of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Rabbi Nicodemus was thinking new covenant. He had kingdom expectations. Understand his logic. Israel had been regathered to the land. In his mind, the renewed zeal for the law exhibited by the Pharisees must be this new heart. Thus, in Nicodemus' thinking, the Jews were regathered, their hearts regenerated. All that remained was for Messiah to overthrow Rome and reestablish God's kingdom on the earth. Jesus knew the rabbi's thoughts. And he answers his questions before he even asks them. Jesus tells him, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In essence, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, recall the three stages of this new covenant and the order in which they happen. Yes, there's been a regathering and there will be a reestablishment of the kingdom. These are the bookends. But in between, there's a spiritual revival, a regeneration of our hearts. Nicodemus had mistaken religious zeal for spiritual revival. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, hold your horses now. Rethink what you're calling a new heart. Self-righteousness isn't God's righteousness. In Nicodemus' desire for God to change the political situation of his day, he had missed the spiritual transformation that God wanted to work in the people's hearts. Jesus warns Nicodemus that in his desire for God's kingdom, he shouldn't skip over spiritual life. A new heart is more than just moralism or legalism or religion. In fact, a person can be moral, a person can be law-abiding, 
A person can be religious and they can be dead. Spiritually dead. Dead to God and the things of God. You can major on the do's and don'ts. You can mind your P's and Q's. You can cross your T's and dot your I's and still be sinful to the core. In fact, religious people are some of the proudest people on the planet. This was the sin of the first century Jews. They were proud of their pedigree. They were the children of Abraham. And they thought that alone made them right with God. This is why Jesus warns them. It's not about your first birth. You have got to be born again. As Ezekiel puts it here in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water. Chapter 36 verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments. Under the old covenant, the priest would take water at the end of a branch and he would sprinkle it on the heads of the people. But under the new covenant, Jesus spiritually sprinkles or cleanses our hearts. Hebrews 10, says it this way, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. A Jewish priest sprinkling, the sprinkling that a Jewish priest would do was a ceremonial rite. But Jesus sprinkles us deeper. He cleanses us inwardly. The old covenant required a person to outwardly conform to a set of rules. It regulated man's behavior. But our problem is deeper than our behavior. It's been said, it's not sin that makes us a sinner. We sin because we are sinners. There's sin in our hearts. We have a sin nature. It's like the boy who was made by his teacher to sit in the corner. He was being disciplined. The little boy said, I might be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. You can conform your actions and yet have a sorry attitude. This was exhibited by Israel of old. This is why the Holy Spirit sprinkles us and cleanses us from the inside out. He plants within us a new nature. Ezekiel says that God will put His Spirit within us. This is how God starts to work in every life. He gives us a heart transplant. God takes out our heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. A soft, squishy heart. Before we come to Jesus, our hearts are hard and calloused and stubborn toward God and toward each other. But if we're truly repentant, if we humble and come broken before Him, what I call the subtle miracle occurs. You receive a soft and sensitive and willing heart. Under the new covenant, God's Spirit takes out our defiant spirit and replaces it with a compliant spirit. A Christian's most basic instinct is to love God and to love other people. And this is my question for you this morning. Have you experienced this heart transplant? Has this happened to you? Has God taken out your heart of stone and replaced it with a soft, sensitive heart? 
Have you been changed on the inside? Is it now your strongest desire to love God and to love others? Or does your heart remain hard and selfish? So what if you keep your nose clean and play by all the rules? You know, some folks are good people only to make themselves look good. Not because they love God. Don't be deceived. Love is what matters to our Lord. This is what a new heart spawns. Love for God and love for others. The Pharisees were religious without love. They were clean on the outside but filthy on the inside. And Jesus reserved his harshest condemnation for them. This is why Nicodemus, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's more than just turning over a new leaf or just trying to do better. That's not reformation. That's not what God is after. He's after transformation. The new covenant is about you and I becoming something different than we were before. Take a little pig. You can dress up a little piglet. You can dress him like a little boy. You can treat that pig like a little boy, even give that pig a few boy toys. But guess what? He's still a pig. And the first time he gets around a mud puddle, he's going to jump right in it and do what pigs do. Trust me. You can't betray his real nature. You can't make him something that he's not. Something has to change. And the same is true with us spiritually. I think this is the question that people are asking today in our culture. People are asking, who am I? People are searching for their identity. Am I a hipster? Am I a geek? Am I a jock? Am I Asian? Am I Hispanic? We see white people today pretending to be black and black folks wanting to be white. We see females who think they're male and males who think they're female. We've even seen some men and women who want to be both. Recently, tough guy Chuck Norris admitted, I too was once a male trapped in a female's body. Then my mother gave birth. But there is an identity crisis in our culture, is there not? Hey, people today even play internet games where they assume a different identity and spend hours as their virtual selves. They don't like who they actually are. People are trying to assume a new them. But here's the reality for all of us. You'll never be happy with who you are until you've been born again. The Bible teaches that the first time we're born, we're born into sin. Hey, we're all born twisted or warped in some way. It's only when we're born again of God's Spirit that we discover who He meant for us to be and His will for our lives. And to help Nicodemus understand this truth... Jesus quotes Ezekiel 36. He says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Remember, Nicodemus is a Jewish rabbi steeped in the Old Testament. That's why Jesus quotes right from Ezekiel 36. 
God will sprinkle you with water. He'll put a new spirit within you. Nicodemus, read Ezekiel. You must be born of water and of the spirit. Jesus goes on to tell Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus knew that what's flesh is flesh. That what that human effort can't really change the nature of a man. Jesus is saying that all the self-help in the world, all the personal improvement, all the life coaching, all the trying harder and doing better isn't enough. Under the old covenant, the Jews had proven that our own goodness is never good enough for God. We have to be born of His Spirit. Only God can change us and purify us on the inside. Only God can make us something different than we were before. Jesus ends his conversation with Nicodemus with a rebuke. A Jewish scholar should have known these truths. Jesus takes the teacher to school. He says, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? And here's the master's point. The new covenant wasn't ready to be fulfilled. Not yet. Messiah won't sit on the throne of David and set up his earthly kingdom, until spiritual revival comes to Israel first. Before God's kingdom is established on the earth in a tangible way, it first has to come to us spiritually. You remember in Luke chapter 17, the Pharisees asked Jesus, Oh, we hear all this talk of a kingdom. The kingdom of God is coming. But where is this kingdom? They were thinking of a military or political kingdom. They were thinking of pomp and circumstance and show and observation. But Jesus replied, the kingdom does not come with outward observation. The kingdom of God is within you. This is what God is doing in the world today. He's growing his kingdom from the inside out in the hearts of men. He's saying the Jews won't see God's earthly political kingdom until King Jesus rules over their hearts first. One day, Jesus will come back to this earth on a war horse, no less, with sword drawn to slay the wicked and take over the kingdoms of this earth. Revelation 19 says a name will be tatted down his thigh. It'll read, King of kings and Lord of lords. But until that day, Jesus is the King of hearts. The new covenant requires the Messiah to rule over us spiritually before he returns to rule over us politically. I believe that all this was in Jesus' mind the night that he was crucified. He didn't just come into the world to gain our forgiveness, though he did. He had far more ambitious plans. For in the upper room with his peeps, Jesus took the Passover cup and he gave it brand new meaning. He invited his disciples both then and now Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant. Understand Jesus' bold claim. His blood, his sacrifice activated the new covenant that God had promised his people. Until the end of time, Jesus is now the mediator of this new promise, this new covenant. To receive a new heart, to be the person that you were meant to be. You have to come to Jesus. 
After Jesus' resurrection and before his ascension, he hung out on earth for 40 days. He held a little Q&A for his disciples. That's what he did. And guess what questions they asked? What was on their mind? In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, we're told, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Why that question? Well, the kingdom was next on the new covenant checklist. Regathering? Check. Regeneration? Check. At least in the hearts of his disciples, they had been born again. According to the new covenant, all that was left was the physical coming of God's kingdom. And Jesus answers the disciples in an interesting way. He says to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses. He didn't say God's kingdom was right around the corner, but he didn't say it wasn't. I think you could kind of call Jesus' answer a definite maybe. Basically, he says, timing is the Father's business, power is the Spirit's business, and being a witness is your business. So don't stick your nose in somebody else's business. But when you examine how Peter and the disciples preached, it was as if they believed Jesus' return and his physical kingdom were on the immediate horizon. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached to the Jews, he spoke of end-time events. In Acts 2, verse 17, he quotes the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days. Peter thought he was in the last days. He was at the end of the age. He goes on, I will show signs in the earth, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. I think Peter believed that if the Jews had embraced Jesus that day, he would have immediately returned to eliminate his enemies and establish his kingdom. But they didn't. They didn't believe and Jesus didn't return. Instead, God pushed pause on the new covenant. And that's where we are today. We're in this pause. In a soccer match, there's a rule known as stoppage time. My kid played soccer. It took me about five seasons to figure this out. But a match consists of 90 minutes of supposedly continual play. There are times, though, when the play stops. An injury, a fight, a goal celebration a restart for a corner kick or a free kick. And a referee is supposed to keep track of the stoppage time, the time that the play has stopped. He then adds it back to the game after the official 90 minutes have expired. The problem, though, is it doesn't usually appear on the scoreboard. It's kept down on the field, so you don't really know when the game is going to finish. And here's what's happened with God's time clock. When the Jews rejected Jesus, God put us on stoppage time. He turned his attention to the Gentiles and he offered them salvation. Paul says that this is the great mystery that was not seen in the Old Testament. Since the Tower of Babel, salvation had been a family business. It belonged to Abraham and sons. Through the Jews, God intended to reach everyone else. 
Yet after the Jews' rejection of Jesus, God began to offer his salvation directly to whosoever will, to any and all of us. It's like a single fellow planning the ultimate date, the ultimate date night. Starry sky, soft music, candlelight dinner on a rooftop, luxurious setting, gourmet meal. But what if his date backs out at the last minute? What will he do? Let it all go to waste? No, not hardly. He's going to pull out his little black book and he's going to call his second choice. And if she's busy, his third choice, maybe even his fourth choice if need be. And that is exactly what God did. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus told the parable of a man who was hosting a banquet. Everyone he invited had an excuse why they couldn't come. So he told his servants to go and bring in the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. Don't be offended, but that's God's description of us. That's who we are in the parable. The poor and maimed and lame and blind. We're the people nobody else wanted. But God included us. Oh, don't be too proud to think of yourself among the down and out in need of grace. The folks God rejects are people who think they deserve His love. The proud and the self-righteous are the people who miss out. And this is where we are today in God's plan. We are in the stoppage time. His plans for Israel are on hold. And God is reaching out to Gentiles with the spiritual provision of the new covenant. We too can have a new heart. We can discover who we were meant to be by giving our lives to Jesus. But here's how this match concludes. You see, the new covenant has yet to be realized among the Jews. They're regathering and regeneration And then the reestablishment of the kingdom is yet to be fulfilled. But it will be. God's promises will come true. In fact, we see it starting to happen today. Shortly after the Jewish leadership rejected Jesus, the Romans invaded Israel. In 70 AD, they destroyed the temple. And they just scattered the Jewish people another again uh, for a second time. And for the last 2,000 years, the Hebrew race has been scattered and dispersed. The diaspora Jew, as the literature calls it, the wandering Jew, has drifted from nation to nation, finding persecution and hardship everywhere they've settled. Until finally, around the turn of the 20th century, the Jews started migrating home. In 1900, 35,000 Jews lived in the Promised Land. Today, there are 6.5 million Hebrews living among the mountains of Israel. As in Jesus' day, the regathering of the Jewish people has begun. And the Hebrews, according to the New Covenant, will eventually humble themselves and embrace their Messiah. Remember who the mediator of this New Covenant is. It's Jesus And in Romans 11, verse 26, Paul predicts that in the end, all Israel will be saved. They will embrace Jesus. We studied this past Wednesday, Ezekiel 38 and 39. 
It tells us that in the latter days, a Russian Arab confederacy will invade Israel. And God will intervene supernaturally. He'll deliver His people from a, with a colossal earthquake. The magnitude of this earthquake will shake the earth. But more impressive, it will wake up the Jews from their spiritual slumber. They'll embrace Jesus as their Lord. The regeneration of the new covenant will take place. Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 tells us how it will happen. God will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And notice, then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. Their hearts will be softened by God's Spirit and the Jews will ultimately realize that the scars of Jesus were for them. Which will pave the way for God's kingdom to come. The Lord will return with thousands upon thousands of His saints and reestablish His kingdom to Israel. You remember at His first coming, the only crown Jesus wore was a crown of thorns. Instead of sitting on a throne, he hung from a cross. He prayed for his enemies. But when Jesus returns, he will pray on his enemies. He will judge the wicked and he will reign from his throne and he'll govern this world as a benevolent dictator. His kingdom will come. In the meantime, we're in stoppage time. We're not sure how much time we have left, but we know it's not much. We are in what the Bible calls the latter days. 70% of your Bible is done. Add to that the rest of the Old Testament and the life of Jesus, another 29.9%. That means we only have seconds remaining. This is why Paul said to the Corinthians with urgency, Behold, now is the accepted time Behold, now is the day of salvation. He urged them to seize the opportunity. The Bible teaches us that we live in exceptional times. That God is holding out an olive branch to sinners who have rebelled against Him. Here's the question. Will you come to Jesus? Will you be saved?